everybody, welcome to the next episode of Life Changing Conversations with me, Neil Shah. And today I'm here with Kyle Davies, who's the author of a wonderful book called The Intelligent Body. I have a copy here. I've had a look at it, fantastic book. He's also a chartered occupational psychologist, he's a therapist, a coach, a trainer, an author. He's the creator of the Energy Flow Coaching System, which essentially provides a framework and process that can be applied to a health setting for eradicating symptoms of chronic fatigue, pain, anxiety, depression, and a workplace setting for improving motivation, creativity, performance, and clarity of mind. I'm extremely fascinated by some of the things that you're up to because it very closely aligns with the work that I do on a day-to-day -day basis with our organization of Stress Management Society. So tell me a little bit more about yourself. What do you do? What are you up to and why? What am I up to and why? So I, I guess, like you just said in the intro, there's a couple of things I do. Um, I work with people both as individuals and in groups. I do that in person, I do that online. And it's uh, from a perspective of health and well-being. So I work with people with chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, anxiety, depression, those sorts of kind of, if I can say, stress-related symptoms. And then I work with people within organizations to help improve creativity, get you know get clear thinking brains, uh, and improve performance. One of the things I picked up from uh, flicking through your book is, is you say taking people back to their authentic self. Now those words really resonated with me, but I'd really like to understand what do you mean by that? When, when you say taking us back to our authentic selves, what is your perspective on that? What does that mean? So I suppose my my sense of it is is maybe a little bit esoteric. So I think that we are we're all connected, and I think we are a flow of consciousness that kind of goes through time. Mm -hmm. I think that we as human beings we kind of exist on a bit of a spectrum, yeah. um, which I talk about in the book. And I think there's a part of us that realizes that we can feel good and we're okay and we feel connected and a sense of oneness. And I think at the other end of the spectrum is where we feel separate, we feel restricted, we feel fearful, we feel that life directly causes how, how we feel, so we often get, we get stuck in fear, we get stuck in trying to fix outside life. Uh, and we, we kind of bounce around on this kind of spectrum. So for me, the true authentic self is not something that we necessarily have to define as you, this is your true self, because it's something I think can, can ebb and flow and can change. But it, it manifests itself through how we feel. I, I would say that, I guess to encapsulate that, that your true or authentic self is a flow. And by aligning and coming back into your body and feeling and breathing, it's easier to align with that flow and then be guided uh, by it. I think too frequently we get stuck in who we're not, which is this limited self where we were trying to uh, match who we are to the world. We're trying to define ourselves. Now, our ego is involved in that to a certain extent as well. But I think what, what happens is we end up being kind of detached from this flow that is us. Mm. And then we get a bit frantic and then we get caught in a cycle of trying to fix ourselves, usually by trying to fix outside life. And I think that's what gets people stuck in this, I'm not okay. You know, we're not scared to get deep on LCC and we are happy to go a little bit esoteric. And it, it's great that you're able to, to share that with us because 
from my perspective, I also find that a lot of people are living very much an extrinsic experience. And really the answers that you seek uh, present themselves when you're able to look more intrinsically. And this is something I find fascinating, this, this kind of, as you say, back to your authentic self. For me, the language I might use to describe that same experience is getting people to stand in their own true sovereign power. Uh, and and yeah. now, now the question I have for you is this something that we're born into? Are you born your authentic self? Or is this is this nature or nurture? Is this conditioning, upbringing? You know, where, where does this come from? I suppose I feel that we have a... Our natural default is to be more aligned with this authentic or expanded or true self. Um, however, because we're kind of playing this game, as you say, we're very externally focused. So we do therefore exist on that spectrum. And I think, I think allowing that to be okay is, is probably quite important. It, it's, it's interesting because uh, I think that we can't, I don't think that we can think our way back to this authentic expanded self. Mm. I don't think we can force ourselves there. I think we naturally gravitate there almost when we get out of the way. Um, what's interesting about it is that for the most part, as human beings, we we're in this, certainly in Western culture, we're in this space where we we believe that thinking is is the route to solve a problem. So we you know the almost like the, the cultural default is to think our way back, uh, but we can't think our way back. We have to kind of stop thinking. Um, so that's that's the conundrum I think that that, that people face. Um, so I, I think. I think in terms of the question of oh, is it nature or nurture, I, I think probably our natural default is to be more aligned with this authentic expanded self. Hmm. However, we have to accept that we exist on a spectrum and there are going to be times where we get pulled into this kind of fear space where we don't feel great. And allowing that to be without trying to immediately fix ourselves usually enables us to kind of bounce back quicker. Um, I think that, again, we live in, we're living in, in a time where Everyone wants to kind of feel good, and you should feel good, and you should be happy, and you should put that on Facebook. But the kind of the, <laughs> the, the sort of the, uh, the 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 fallout of that, I think, is that people probably feel more miserable, more detached, uh, less happy, and, and and are trying to fix that by becoming more externally focused. This is something I wholeheartedly agree with. The we are seeking the connection externally. It goes back to kind of ex, that whole extrinsic experience. Whereas actually, true connection only comes through connection with self. You know that this is where you know today it's it's Facebook and Twitter and, and YouTube and the rest of it. In the past, it might have been social clubs or religion or whatever but we're seeking that connection externally and sadly it's like a hamster on a wheel you're never going to get to the destination the only way to get that true connection is to is to dive deeper internally and again as you mentioned it's you know people think themselves into that space but you can't think yourself out of that space it's only through getting that true connection dropping into your body or more deeply into your spirit your soul whatever you believe from from my perspective but this coming on to the kind of the next thing I wanted to, to, to talk about, that obviously you talk about illness, chronic fatigue, pain. So the, what's the connection there between, you, you, you know, where you are in terms of standing in your authentic self or when you're outside your authentic self, how that can then tra transgress into illness and, uh, uh, and other physical ailments and issues? 
I know it's a tough one, isn't it? And people would think that's it's all a bit woolly and thinking, how can you talk about a physical health challenge mm. and then talk about your authentic self? Uh, and the connection really between those, the deeper esoteric and the physical, is that um, in my view, people get ill for the most part when their body is in a perpetual state of stress. And we know that the body, there's a whole range of things that, that lead to the stress response. And it can be uh, emotion that builds up, it can be a physical injury, it can be uh, a case of flu or an illness, it can be that you overexercise, it can be you have a bad diet, you take drugs. So there's a whole raft of things that trigger the exact same stress response in the body. Sure. Uh, from my perspective, the biggest cause or the biggest source of, of stress uh, is our emotional feelings. And emotions are kind of easy to block or feelings are easy to block. And so I think that, from, again, I think that emotions and feelings are slightly different. So I, I look at emotions as a non-conscious process that I then triggers feelings. And feelings are a feedback. So just like hunger, just like if you're walking down the street and a stone pops in your shoe, you get a sharp pain in your foot, that feeling of pain is feedback. Mm -hmm. Because if we don't pay attention to that, or if we block that feeling, then there's damage to our foot and we could get gangrene at your leg. Um, and I think our emotional feelings, uh, the emotions that then trigger feelings, the feelings that follow emotions are exactly the same. It's a feedback mechanism. But what we know is that it's possible to suppress and block our feelings. When we, if we do that, it doesn't mean that emotion is not still running. So emotion is still a feedback loop that's kind of ongoing. Now, emotion is, uh, so, so in terms of how that relates to symptoms, when we, if those feelings, if those emotions are kind of ongoing, the body, the brain detects that emotion is present, but kind of nothing is being done because it's a feedback. Mm. And it's almost as if the body turns up the volume to try to get attention. Now, in my view, what happens is that the HPA access within the brain becomes overactive, so certain midbrain regions become overactive. Uh, and the, the, the overactivity there then results in dysfunction within the autonomic nervous system, the immune system, and the endocrine system. And then what we have is symptoms and disease. So there's a chain reaction, which is a, a what I would say called stress bucket, predominantly with emotional stress, which, which then leads to this overactivity in midbrain regions, which leads to this uh, dysfunction within systems, and then that leads to symptoms. So, in terms of how does that link to authentic self, my view is that our emotional feelings are, are a guide back to our, our authentic self. So if we are, if you're, you know, if you're feeling something pleasant, it's letting you know you're kind of on the right track. If you're feeling something unpleasant, it's, it's trying to bring you back to your authentic self. So, and if we look at this kind of if, if we look at this from a perspective of empowerment, which is kind of what my work is all about, if I'm if I'm at work at the office and I experience anger and I'm talking to my boss, rather than saying my boss is making me angry, I I, I would look at it from a perspective of this emotion of anger is inviting me to act in alignment with my authentic self, if that makes sense. So my emotion is about me. You know, we're talking about emotions and often emotions in modern society are labelled as a bad thing. 
we do have a situation where you know mental health issues are at epidemic proportions the main cause of death in a man under the age of 45 in britain today is suicide and it's because we're not talking about our feelings we're not expressing our emotions it's often seen as a sign of weakness particularly amongst young men and obviously what you're saying there is those emotions manifest for a reason if we're not expressing them what's the potential consequences yeah, well, the consequences are huge, really. I think that uh, you're absolutely right. Emotion is probably for a number of reasons has been kind of swept under the carpet. But I think the most useful way of looking at it is as feedback, just as the same as hunger is or tiredness is or, need, you know, if you need the loo, you know, you get a physical uh, sensation in the body. Uh, so looking at emotion in the same way is very important. And rather than, as, as I was saying earlier, you know, the idea of, so my boss makes me angry. It's my my emotion. Emer- not, emotion is not triggered by something outside. Emotion emerges from within me, and my emotion is guiding me back to my my authentic self. It's almost like a tap on the shoulder to say, "This is your your chance to act in, in, in alignment with your your true self." And I know that sounds a bit possibly a bit woolly. But I think we often get lost in the idea that something out there is causing me to feel something. And then because we've not really explored emotion uh, and culturally, it's as you said, it seems a, a something of a, of a weakness, there is that tendency to, to block it, to push it down, to push it aside. But whereas in actual fact, uh, our emotion is not some imaginary mental process, is it quite literally is something that affects pretty much all of the brain and all of the body. So when it's blocked or ignored, you know, it has a big effect on the way the body works and, and the brain works. Yeah, I, I can relate to this. I've had a couple of experiences that have allowed me to really take some time to observe this. I have done three Vipassana retreats. So Vipassana is a, a 10-day silent meditation program. And it's, it's essentially, it's, a, it's about literally observing the sensations that occur in your body as it is right now, uh, as, a, as a kind of a passive bystander. And some of the language you've used there I find quite interesting because one of the things that they suggest is most discomfort, most stress, most anxiety comes because we're locked in a cycle of either craving or aversion. We have pleasant experiences and we're craving more of them, or we have a negative experience and we, got, we become uh, averse to them and we try to do our best to avoid them. And being able to stand in a non-judgmental, neutral place allows you to observe the experiences and sensations that are occurring within the confines of the body, because that's what's real, um, and being able to, to, to kind of be more neutral and uh, not so much indifferent or apathetic, I'm not sure if that's the right language, but in a non-reactive space. Um, and, and it sounds like what you're describing is very similar to that. I think it probably is, really. I think it's, uh, there's probably a, a few points there. The first thing is we seem to have almost like an instinctive thing to uh, resist uncomfortable feelings. And that's probably natural because it would mm-hmm. appear that the same areas of the brain become active when we experience uh, some uh, emotional pain as well in which we say physical pain um, so that that tendency to resist and wince is there i think as human beings we naturally want to move towards what's comfortable and away from what isn't however i think that and kind of what you're experiencing there is that to a certain extent mastery of life can arise from allowing ourselves to tolerate a degree of discomfort especially when it comes mm. to our feelings uh, and allow them to be, don't judge them, 
um, recognise that they may be in, inviting us to act in this kind of sort of authentic way. Um, but also, I think one of the things is that knowing uh, often people resist as well because they they feel they or they think they're going to drown in their feelings. Usually, what happens is our emotion comes, and because our emotional processing occurs at higher speeds than our thinking, we know that thinking can lead to uh, to emotional feelings. But very often, it's our emotions affecting our thinking. Mm. So. All of our thinking, all of our perceptions are affected by whatever it, uh, whatever feelings are, are present, whether we're up, whether we are aware of those feelings or, or not. Uh, so what often happens is we have a feeling, and then our thinking kind of goes into overdrive, where we are we're trying to find meaning in what we're feeling, we're analysing it, we're trying to solve it. So the idea of that, and of course all of you, is trying to get away from it. Uh, if we can be in that space where actually. Everything I feel is okay. What I feel is not a problem. Um, you know, it's maybe inviting me to act. It may just be there for something for me to experience. When we do that, actually, we remove a whole layer of suffering. The kind of interesting sort of irony is that when we get into our head and our thinking ramps up, you know, resisting, trying to find meaning, analysing, all of that just leads to a layer of suffering on top of the, the feelings that we already have. So we can get rid of that whole layer just by allowing ourselves, if we do nothing else, just to feel the sensation of what we feel. And go back to what I was saying earlier about this kind of uh, the limited self and the expanded self. When we're in a space of discomfort, we're moving and we're getting, we're getting pulled down into this smaller space. Just by letting it flow, letting our feelings flow without judgment, that would, and knowing that well, my default is going to nudge me back up, so to this expanded space where I feel more connected, I feel more one, a greater peace of mind, a greater sense of love. It, what I, what I can know is that simply by doing nothing, simply by allowing my feelings to flow, at some point, without anything changing out there in life, I will naturally begin to feel better. I will naturally begin to realign with this kind of true self, this expanded self. Okay, but at the other end of the spectrum, when you're getting further and further away from your true self, how potentially is that going to manifest itself in illness and disease? Help, help us to understand the connection between, you know, stepping out of your authentic self and actually then suffering from illnesses and ailments. So what tends to happen is when we are not being true to ourselves, we tend to have more negative emotion, more anger, more fear, more frustration, more boredom, more shame, more guilt. So my view is that our, our, the way our body works is it sends feelings of any sort as, as a form of feedback, and if we don't if we don't pick up on that feedback for whatever reason or we don't do something about it, our body doesn't stop; it just turns up the volume. Um, you you know it's very often the case that uh, if we experience a symptom, I've seen so much of this over the last kind of fifteen years. Mm -hmm. if we experience a symptom of sorts and we do something to suppress that symptom, either the body will just turn up the volume, send more of it, or very often it kind of, the symptom will morph into something else. So it could be that you're a person that has, say, a, a bad head every couple of weeks that lasts for a, for a day or so, and you take pills, you don't go into, you don't ask the question of, okay, so what's going on behind this? Why is my body sending me this? It may be that you get bad stomachs, so maybe you get anxiety, you maybe get something else. So the, the, the symptoms will morph. So I think it's a very it's it's been incredibly important for us to rather than look at symptoms as being some bad evil invaders that we need to get rid of, and we are in that mindset, we need to get rid of symptoms. What we 
we need to do is recognize that symptoms are actually purposeful feedback. They're saying exactly the same way as the feeling of hunger is purposeful feedback or the feeling of tiredness is or anything like that. And that, that feedback, as you said, it could be emotional, um, but also something I've, I've read a little bit about, and there's a, a few interesting books out there about kind of the metaphysical reasons behind illnesses. So it could be this some kind of a deeper spiritual kind of reason behind you manifesting illnesses, which is not just down to your day-to-day -day emotional state. Um, I, I guess from my perspective, um, so I think looking at it from a spiritual perspective, that rather than these things are happening, you know, life isn't happening to you, life is kind of happening for you and through you. Uh, but very often, you know, without that spiritual kind of viewpoint of, all right, well, whatever is showing up is showing up for me, and somehow I'm inviting, so what I need to do is remove the judgment because I wouldn't learn any lessons if there's judgment there, recognize that it's about me, and recognize there's something that I need to learn from this. And it could be that, you know, I, I need to learn to feel these feelings and alter the way I behave in this context. It could mean a whole host of things. But that's the spiritual perspective, I think. What I'm also really interested in exploring is that, you know, we've now kind of really helped to understand how your emotional stroke spiritual state can lead to you having sort of traumatic experiences, illness, ailments, and the rest of it. So, in your opinion, do you believe that we can cure, reverse, and completely heal ourselves of conditions that we face if that's kind of the reason behind them? Uh, I don't see why not. Okay. I'm optimistic. Um, I think that it, it depends, really. You know, it depends upon what is going on in the body, you okay. could argue. Um, remember when I, you know, when I was a few years into doing this work, I came across a book by Dr. Gabor Matty, who's written a foreword for my book, and his book is called When the Body Says No. Um, and at the time I got very excited because I thought, oh, here's a guy, and he's saying basically the same thing as me, mm. but what he's talking about is, in his book is heart disease, cancer, uh, arthritis, and all these other kind of issues and, you know, health, health problems, where there is a structural problem in the body. Um, now, everything that I work with, the chronic fatigues, the chronic pains, IBS, anxiety, depression, these are all conditions where the symptoms are reversible because there's no stru structural damage in the body. Mm. So I think, I think it's possible to address all those symptoms. When it comes to if a person has heart disease or a person has cancer, it may be that they need medicine as well. But I think that embracing this kind of mind-body consciousness work uh, I think I think everyone should do it really because mm. I think it, it it helps it helps you on your spiritual path. It'll help with your health and well-being. Help you be more creative. It'll just help you have a better experience of life. And absolutely, we had um, Dr. Michael Greger on the, the the show a couple of months ago, and he was talking about people that were able to reverse you know terminal cases of heart disease and cancer by literally changing their lifestyle and i'm talking about very very rapid results so there are plenty of people out there saying the same thing and it's it's interestingly important for us to explore all the information that's out there and ensuring that people are empowered to take responsibility of their own well-being because sadly we find that far too many people delegate their responsibility to somebody that might find that they are less empowered or their health is as compromised as the person they're attempting to treat, which is ultimately where sort of, uh, you know, another guest that we had on the show recently, Dr. Rong Chatterjee, was talking about functional medicine and how, you know, doctors should be prescribing meditation and lifestyle changes and diet and exercise 
before they're prescribing medicine. So, you know, again, I'm not here in any way, shape or form to say don't take your medicine, but there are many different ways that you can treat yourself and improve your well-being rather than just pharmaceuticals. What we know is that uh, Western medicine has done some amazing things um, and it works with problems that are acute in a very, very clever way. If you need surgery, it's absolutely brilliant, you know, um, but it has a focus on treating uh, symptoms. So if, if the cause of those uh, symptoms is not addressed, there's every chance the symptoms will either persist or, as I was saying earlier, they'll morph into something else. And of course, this is probably why we are having more people experiencing chronic problems than ever before. And this is something that is also very close to my heart. You know, people that are sick in pain, have got chronic conditions. This can be a hard thing to believe, a hard thing to take on board. I face this with my own mother. Um, you know, she's had a number of chronic conditions, including her back and her knee. And we're so used to looking to the doctor or, you know, the medical establishment to fix us, uh, expecting them to know the answers, expecting their words to be solid, you know. Um, and that's where sometimes, you know, offering theories and belief systems as, as what you're expressing, which I wholeheartedly subscribe to, um, I find that, that, that sometimes it's really hard to get people to take this on board because they feel the system knows better. How do you challenge this? You, you, you know, how do we address this knowing that you are fighting a well-established, well-funded system that is putting out a message that would result in people believing that they know better? It's a paradigm shift that's needed to a certain extent, isn't it? I think that uh, the way medicine works, medicine still operates from a perspective of a mind-body split. It um, subscribes to a materialist paradigm, which is the body is a machine and it's broken down into its constituent parts. So we all look at health like that and, you know, it's engendered within us, isn't it? We, we, we often view a health problem as something that is happening to us and because as a culture we want things sorted immediately we, we're looking to the quickest answer which is pills and potions and, and the rest of it. Um, I, I, I don't think we fight that, I, I think that we, we look to appeal to those people that are open to these ideas and I think with critical mass the tide will turn um, because in my experience of it um, the people that are opposed to the sort of work I do, in most instances, there's, there's no changing them. Hmm. Um, so I tend to direct my focus to those people that are open to these sorts of ideas. Because there are, there are too many people that are eager to say, no, that's absolute nonsense. Mm -hmm. And I, I, it's, for me, it feels like a waste of energy to, to get into a, a, a fight with those, with those people. I think, you know, we are seeing a wave of change, aren't we? So it seems to me that um, people are taking more responsibility for their health. It, it was the case, it has been the case for the last kind of five, 10 years, that people have looked at exercise and diet because those are tangible, we can grip onto those. Uh, and I think now there seems to be this acceptance that uh, stress and emotion is that other big piece, obviously from my perspective, it is the biggest piece, but I do, I do understand that when you're young, that's the place I come from. Mm. But I, I think that the tide is turning and we just have to keep you know, preaching our message and, uh, and be patient. And Carl, do you believe that we need to believe in this for it to work for us? I don't think placebo is, is 
this the point. Um, my understanding of it in terms of research is that the placebo effect is is very big when it comes to depression. Mm. Um, the placebo effect is not particularly big when it comes to chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, and those sorts of health problems. So, you know, I've been doing, I've been working with this for about fifteen years, and I've you know seen hundreds and hundreds, probably thousands of people now get get well using these principles. Um, and I don't think they, they it's, it's, I don't think belief in it is 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 an issue. The only thing I would say in terms of of belief is that. You know what we're talking about here is is this idea that um, I'm going to take responsibility for for what I do uh, rather than looking to somebody else to solve me. Yeah. And of course, there therefore is a commitment to doing that. It's in exactly the same way as if I wanted to lose weight and I could have somebody give me a diet plan and exercise program. But ultimately, it's up to me to go to Tesco and buy the right food and hit the gym and do the right stuff. So, it, you know, it, you, you, you know, I suppose you, you could argue that a degree of belief that it's going to work may be needed for the commitments, but not, not necessarily. But you do have to have a commitment to apply the principles and the practices and whatnot. So my work is exactly the same. And I guess these are working with deeply rooted, deeply held belief systems in and of themselves. It could be childhood trauma. It could be diet patterns. It could be the environment that they found themselves living in for you know much of their life. So these, these are kind of patterns that are ingrained in their psyche. So to a degree, they already have pretty strong belief systems which have led them to the disease or the discomfort. Um, so... It, would it be correct in saying that's obviously what we're working with? Is that what we're looking to change? It's certainly patterns. I, I think it, yeah, there, there are. It's it is that that issue of uh, our identity or sense of mm. is a strong driver for our behaviour. And as I was saying earlier, I think in many instances people's sense of self is quite different from their true self. So I do find a lot of my work is about. Uh, breaking patterns, but it's using symptoms as feedback and feelings as feedback that, well, if I'm getting symptoms, if I'm getting uncomfortable feelings, it must mean that I am deviating from myself. It's not just that this is something happening to me. Somehow I'm managing to block myself. So that what we need to do there is identify what that pattern is. So most of my work is based around looking at what's going on today rather than kind of delving into the past, there'll be little doubt that the patterns mm. a person is experiencing or exhibiting today is a result of experiences that they've had, you know, in, in, in the past. Um, but as I say, my, my stuff is based around, well, let's have a look at what's going on. Let's identify those patterns. History repeats itself. So you will find yourself attracting the same people, the same, same sorts of issues uh, today. You know, even though the people may be different, if you could say type of people, the context may be the same or whatever, but it's the same as it was in the past. And actually what happens, what I find happens now, is that uh, situations are becoming more intense, if that makes sense. So where somebody was almost, you know, presented with a life lesson challenge, something happening five, five years ago, and then there's a gap of a year before something happens. Now I'm finding that people are confronted with difficult times and they're, they're having more emotion or they're feeling knocked by it much more and more frequently now than they did five years ago or ten years ago. So I think oh. there is a sense of, I think time is, is speeding up. I think we're going through a big shift. Um, and I think there's almost this a sense of urgency about dealing with the kind of 
patterns that we have that are taking us away from who we are. I agree with you that there seems to be, you know, change of foot and that, that shift is something that many people I speak to have described. And, you know, obviously you, you prepared yourself, you trained to get to this position. You, you are a psychologist. How much of what you learn during your training have you had to unlearn to get to the point where you are today? Because it sounds like a lot of what you talk about is not what you would have learned in your psychology training. No, but that, that's sort of 20 odd years ago, really. Um, I, I guess that... You know, there, there is, life is a journey of learning, isn't it, really? And it's, I, I always find it difficult to discern what I've learned from where, if that makes sense. So, you know, you kind of, as you were saying earlier, you go to seminars, you read books, you, you amass information, you allow this to distill down, and then you, your own ideas kind of come through, and it all kind of becomes one thing. You know, I still make reference to mainstream uh, academia, mm. and you know, one of the what I've tried to do in my book is give a scientific and spiritual angle. So to say, well, here's some studies that show this, and here's a spiritual angle to this, and to to show that the two can actually come together as one. Even though, for the most part, people think that well, if you're science orientated, then spirituality that's that's nonsense. Um, you know, I think the two really are one. With that in mind, what do the medical professionals make of you, Carl? Well, that, that is a good, that's a good question, actually, because um, in April, uh, uh, the Royal College of General Practitioners uh, have reviewed my book, and they've reviewed it quite favourably. Wow, uh, fantastic. I was, I was very pleased at coming from, coming from medicine. So uh, that, as I say, that comes out, that, that, that will be coming out at the end of April, that, 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 that journal. So, uh, you know, whether there will be other GPs that, that, you know, look upon my book in a favourable manner, who knows. So, Carl, are there certain emotions, there are certain kind of traumas that we might experience, like something that happens in childhood, uh, it could be kind of dietary related, it could be some environmental issues, it could be maybe a, a serious traumatic issue like a, a car crash that would then link to particular types of illnesses that we're likely to experience. Is there a correlation? I'm not aware of a correlation between certain types of stress or trauma and certain types of health challenge. My sense of it is that the the type of health challenge a person experiences is probably down to their genetic lineage. So okay. some people are predisposed to certain things, others to other things. Um, I think that in terms, I do believe they're all linked to kind of stress and, and trauma to a certain extent. There was a big research study done in the U.S. Um, and I can't think of the name of the guy that did it, but he did it in, a, in an obesity clinic. And what he, what he, the kind of interesting thing was, what he found was that um, people would go to the clinic, and, all of, and there was a whole raft of people that would begin to make progress and lose weight, and then they'd drop out. He's very curious as to why this was. And when he looked at their cases, he found they'd all gained weight very, very quickly. Uh, and as I say, it wasn't that they gradually gained weight over time, they gained weight very quickly, and then they stabilized with this, you know, this particular weight. And then they'd begin to make progress and drop out. So he started to interview these, and what he found was that they'd all been victims of abuse. And mm -hmm. it was almost as if the weight was a way of kind of protecting themselves from the world. When he extrapolated the study um, and looked at various types of abuse, and they did this for hundreds of thousands of people, uh, what they found was that pretty much every chronic health challenge that people experienced in older life, into their kind of 40s and 50s, 
related to the number of what they call adverse childhood experiences or ACEs that they've experienced in early life. And this could be, uh, you know, a parent who has mental health problems, is a drug addict, uh, parents who split up, abuse of some sort or, or, or another, problems at school. So there was a whole list of, of, of ACEs, and the more ACEs a person has, the more likely they are to have a, a, a chronic health, health problem in, in, in later life. So I think that connection definitely exists. That, that study has been repeated, I suspect, in England, certainly in Wales it has, in Scotland it has, and the results are exactly the same. So there is definitely, and you know, so that message is getting louder that uh, it's important, obviously, to look after our kids. But you, you know, there's definitely that connection with with the emotional stress or the trauma. You know, because what trauma is is what happens in the body, and then it's the patterns that are learned from that. And I think, as I say, that's for me, that's the issue: is people get sent off on this direction of who they're not, and they end up they end up trying to cope with life because they've experienced strong feelings early in life which in order to kind of cope with life and deal with life they unconsciously learn to, to block and it's that pattern of blocked feelings through life so whilst we need to be looking at the trauma and trying to reduce trauma for, for, for kids if possible actually i think it is possible to to kind of reverse what's happening by understanding uh that actually it's a disconnection from true self it's interesting actually because I have a client at the moment that has that experience whereby his mother had two issues in the final stages of pregnancy. She had a cancer scare and a car car accident, and he has two two uh, siblings, and his stress response is much much higher than theirs. So I mean, he gets stressed much more more easily than, than they do. Obviously, what I'm trying to, to do is is rewire his brain um, through through the you know the kind of process that I that I work with him. And Carl, how do you work with your patients, with uh, you know, the, the people that you're working with? I come to you and I present an issue and let's say I've got chronic fatigue, I've been suffering with it for years. You know, how would you help me? How would you work with me? What would you get me to do? So, so I, I, I work with people, I work with a range of people from executive coaching, people in business, through to people that are ill. The principles and framework underpins all that is kind of largely the same because I'm really getting people to look inwardly. If I'm working with somebody that has symptoms, we're looking at the symptoms as a, as a you know, a, a, an issue that a, a tap on the shoulder. Your body's trying to get your attention. That's a great example. I had a client yesterday, and she had anxiety symptoms, and immediately she was looking at taking supplements, uh, lying down, and breathing, mm. and and that didn't make any difference. And I was inviting her to really look at, okay, well, your body's sending those symptoms for a reason. There's emotions getting stuck in your stress bucket. And what's happening is that you're beginning, it means that you're kind of blocking your true self, you're deviating from your true self, and your body is shouting you with the, that feedback that it sends. Because as she then begins to tell me what was going on, it becomes, it becomes obvious to her what it is that was going on on that particular day and how she was not allowing herself to be true to herself. Mm -hmm. And then she can see, oh, well, yeah, I can then see why my body sent those, that, that, that feedback. Um, so I think, but that, it takes, it takes quite a while to get there, if that makes sense, because people are used to, as you were saying earlier, people are so used to the idea that I've got symptoms, give me something now to yeah, absolutely. Those, those symptoms. So that, that's one of the big challenges. It's a complete turnaround to say, well, well my body's sending symptoms 
because it's trying to get my attention, what I need to do is look at how I've interacted with my environment because there's obviously something going on and I'm not, I'm somehow blocking myself. So I need to change something that I'm doing. And have you reached your authentic self, Kyle? Well, that's, I, I, I don't think there's a version of us. I think I, a, a thing I say to my clients is be curious about who you might be rather than trying to work out who you are. Because I think we have the, the potential to be a whole range of things. And because I believe we're a flow of consciousness and we're connected to the source of all that is, who I am is just is an experience, a changing experience that, 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 that I can have. I think this is why, you know, when, when people go traveling, they say, I'm going to find myself. Mm. So actually what, they go, what they're doing, they're putting themselves in different, a different setting with the chance that they may meet different people, they'll behave in a different way. And sometimes people come back a different person. So science will tell us that there's no single version of us and our brain can rewire all through our lives. So we can have a different experience of who we could be. But what we tend to do is repeat the same patterns over and over. We tend to use the same language, we tend to do the same things, and you know, engage in the same kind of tasks and whatnot. And in doing so, what we're doing is reinforcing those neural pathways. Mm. So we're reinforcing an idea about who we think we are. But it's not that that is who we are, it's just that we're reinforcing that. We can rewire that by having different experiences, behaving in different ways, using different language, thinking in different ways. You know, all those sorts of things can change our experience of life. So as we start to wrap up, Carl, could you give us three tips that we can take away to apply to our lives straight away to begin that journey back to better health, to our authentic selves? What are the three key things that you, you can give us? I, I would say three things that probably sound very, very simple is everything that you feel is okay. Um, because as we've said, there's a tendency to resist. So everything you feel is okay. Allow yourself to, to be a little bit more present from that space of what I feel is not a problem. What I feel doesn't need to be solved. So even, you know, as a listener, if you can uh, allow yourself to take a day or two and just have that as your uh, your idea, your intention, your music, that you are going to allow whatever you feel to be okay. So when you feel something uncomfortable, you're going to recognize, well, it may be nudging me back to my true self, but I'm going to allow it to be okay. I'm not going to try to solve it. I'm just going to, I'm going to feel it in this sort of non-judgmental way. Uh, and also, so, you know, once again, you've got your book, The Intelligent Body. Um, where can people get hold of this? They should be able to get it in most places, really. I think it's cheapest on Amazon. It's available now. It's available on in hardback, in Kindle, and in audiobook. Fantastic. Well, I've had a I've had a read of it. It's a fantastic read. I look forward to delving into it in much more detail. And what about if people want to find you? Want to find out more about you and your work? Where can they go? They can go to energyflowcoaching.com. Okay. My website. I'm available on Twitter as Kyle L Davis. On Instagram as Energy Flow Coaching. We'll make sure all those details are on the Facebook page. So uh, make sure you check out the Facebook page. You'll find all the links and Carl's Twitter handle on there as well. And obviously, as always, we encourage your comments, your feedback, like, comment, share. Let us know what you think. Your engagement and your feedback is what drives this forward. So we're really looking forward to hearing from all of our wonderful listeners. It's been really wonderful to have you on. This is Carl Davies, author of The Intelligent Body. This is the Life Changing Conversations. Join the conversation and we'll catch you next week.